Hey, this is Vic Stone from Vindicator, and you are experiencing Poppet's Corner. What's going on, everyone? Welcome. Episode 72 of Poppet's Corner. And uh, I got... Uh, the, the one guy out of this band that I've always wanted to interview, um, out of the Heretic Camp, uh, I got Mr. Brian Corbin, the main songwriter. How are you doing today, man? Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm doing fantastic, Tanner. Thank you for having me out. Thank you for the interest. Absolutely, man. You know, but before we get started, you know, tell the listeners kind of how you've been. Oh, everything's been great. You know, I'm healthy. Everybody's good. My family's good. And uh, just moving forward. Been busy. And the band's hopefully doing good. I saw you guys were rehearsing and whatnot, so that's awesome to see. Yeah. Yeah, we got back to it as soon as we could. We've only gotten in one or two rehearsals, but, you know, with all the quarantine stuff, it made it hard. And then we had curfews, so it made it harder. As soon as we got started again, the unfortunate situation with the unrest happened, and we had to halt for a couple of weeks. So, But we'll, we'll hit it as soon as we can. Absolutely. Well, hey, man, um, if you're ready, I'd love to get started. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am I always like to start here and just ask you kind of what was your first recollection, I guess, of, of just hearing music for the first time? Um, well, music was, my parents were huge into music, so I'm no musicians in the family other than myself, but there was always music around when I was small. My parents were into, you know, big bands and country music and um, it was always on, you know, it wasn't a lot of TV or anything. If it was, my parents were hanging out and we played records and, but I, I, my sister had a huge record collection. My sister was four years older than me. So she just a music lover as well. And she, I, my sister, Sherry, I have to say, show turned me on to so much music. I, I owe so much to her for introducing a lot of bands to me and, one of the ones that hit me first was the Beatles. The Beatles were my first love, you know, as a, you know, six, seven years old, however I would have been, you know, really getting into music. Just the music and the lyrics and the songs and the harmonies. And I just absorbed them and I would stare at the album covers and listen. Um, but she had so many records, you know, anything rock and roll. She let you very eclectic collection so i was exposed to a lot of music when i was young so um you know progressive rock or hard rock or you know easy rock things like that so i i really have an appreciation for kind of everything so i'm really i owe a lot to my sister for sure and i guess what were some of the first beatle records if we can even go there that you kind well, of remember holding so really at my age their whole collection was already done <laughs> so i had every beatle album you know, um, I was born in 66, so they, I think, retired in 70. So by the time I was really checking them out, I, I owned everything. So I just absorbed it all. But I love, I really am partial to the early stuff. You know, I really love the early Beatles, the harmonies and the, when they were young and, and just pumping, you know, um, like tell me why. I don't know if you know that song. Just, you know, just the harmonies are just insane on it. But I remember that's when I knew I wanted to be a guitar player. It was because I would get that tennis racket and play to the, you know, pros in the mirror in my room. And, and I wanted to be a musician, uh, you know. 
And that's when I knew I really wanted to play. It was the Beatles really drove me. I mean, I liked everything at the same time, but I really have to say the Beatles were the, my main thing that I really listened to. And I guess why, how can I put this? Why the guitar? Why not the bass or drums or anything? Like what gravitated you towards just the guitar aspect for you? Uh, I think that I, I don't think I knew what I was doing when I was younger. I was holding it, strumming like I saw on the TV, on the videos, you know. Um, you know, who made me really want to play guitar was Jimmy Page. That was, the Zeppelin was my, once I kind of, I got a little older and I could discover my, songs on my own and what was on the radio, I realized, you know, I heard songs like Stairway to Heaven and, um, you know, these are all older songs as well. You know, I was still fairly young. But that's what hit me, and that was actually Led Zeppelin Four was the first record I paid money for a lot of my own money, and I worked for my dad on the weekends. And I, when I got up enough money, I Led Zeppelin Four was it. Um, Jimmy Page was the guy that made me really want to be a guitar player, for and, sure. And was the guitar your first instrument? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I really had to work at it. I, I had to prove to my parents I wanted to play. Cause, you know, we, we were poor. We didn't have much money and scraping to get by to, to buy a guitar was be expensive. And so I I would you know, go to my friend's house if they had one. Everybody was right handed. I'd flip it over and diddle around and, you know, kind of figure out what I could on it. And I just knew I wanted to. And I just kept nagging my parents. Hey, can can you buy me a guitar? Can you buy me a guitar? And I think eventually they got me a really cheap acoustic one that's probably barely tuned at the time, but it really didn't matter. You know, I, I plugged away and I plugged away and I showed my mom, look, mom, I really want to play, you know? So they, they saw how hard I was working at it. I, I was probably terrible. You know, I, you know, I wasn't taking lessons or anything, but I was really trying on my own. So they finally, they got me a guitar and got me lessons and just started from there. You know, I it was a t- I was a terrible student, by the way. Uh, my guitar teacher would say, are you sure you want to be a musician? Are you sure you want to play guitar? Because you're not studying your lessons. You're not doing this. And I didn't want to learn. The, I didn't want to learn, you know, down by the water, you know, these stupid songs he was teaching me. I wanted to play Stairway to Heaven. I wanted to do it instantly. I was had no patience for it. So I think in the it taught me that I started writing on my own. I started making up my own sounds and my own songs. And I really credit that to making me a songwriter as opposed to learning other people's music. Kind of, kind of interesting. Kind of right. Trippy. And I guess, how, how can I put this? So um, I, I've, all, I've read, not read, but I've heard you in other interviews say that you're Amber Dexterous. So I'm just wondering, um, I'm just wondering why uh, I, I, left sh- I should have, I should have played right-handed because your left hand is already trained to do everything. I'm left-handed for everything. Um, I should have learned right, but I was, I don't know. It just felt better to learn left-handed at the time. It was a terrible idea because there was no left-handed guitars available at all in stores. I had to have things custom made for me. So it was, it was a bad decision. What I used to do is just flip the strings over. So the intonation on a guitar was always terrible. It never tuned properly. Uh, so I, I wish I would have learned right-handed, but I didn't. And it's, this is, that's why I play a V still to this day, the easiest guitar to flip over. You know. Oh, okay. Well, that explains, explains a little bit. Um, now, <laughs> going forward. So when did you decide, 
uh, obviously, like you were taking lessons, right? Uh, Trying not wanting to learn some of the fundamentals. I, I am with the, with you there. I'd much rather just learn other people's songs and then gravitate towards <laughs> songwriting. So, I'm just wondering, did you uh, you modeled yourself after the Beatles when it turned when at least during that time for your songwriting? No, no. I would say I was older by then. By the time I was learning, it was probably... I, I was actually behind a lot of my friends. A lot of the my friends in the neighborhood all had guitars already. They'd been playing for a couple of years, so I was a little behind. I don't know if it was lazy on my part or if I just didn't figure out, hey, you actually better start trying to learn. But I, uh, I eventually really did get into lessons and learn to tuning. You don't realize how important tuning is to the guitar. You just want to play. Once I, once I mastered the tuning and, and I went, oh, okay, I get it. Now it sounds good. Um, I, I learned the fundamentals of reading music, this and that, but I never went much further than once I could write my own stuff. I, I just took off. I, that's what I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play. And I know you do write songs in a certain key, if I'm not mistaken. I have read that in in, uh, other interviews that you have have done. And I'm just wondering when that came into the fold. That came in later. That would be around Reverend years where we actually dropped tune to to help Dave Wayne. We went down, we took a step down, we went to E, tune to E flat. But for all heretic stuff, we were just E, E major. We were just regular tuning. Um, with Reverend, we did the top D tune, you know, we, you just tune the, the E to the D. Stu taught us that, Stu Fujinami. The, the drop D um, method, I gotcha. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And, and that's, you know, now it's all in B and, um, but yeah, everything was just regular tuning um, for and, the early heretic. And I'm just kind of wondering, when did you start, let's go way back, so you, picked up the guitar, you started taking lessons and started writing, you know, your own songs and stuff. When did other people kind of come into the fold for you? When did you start jamming with either the neighborhood kids or people from school? Like, when did that all come into play for you? Uh, You know, it was kind of cool. In our little neighborhood, we had the cul-de-sac where everybody hung out. Everybody, we just all decided as a group, hey, let's get start a band, you know. I'm sure I was a major force behind it, but... Um, we had a drummer, we had a bass player, we had a singer, we had a guitar player, and we all kind of chose our spots and and we started playing. Um, we started off with covers. It was horrible. You know, we, we figured out what we could. I, I would never figure out the whole song. I'd go, oh, I figured out the verse part. Hey, I got this song down. Let's try it, you know. But um, I was kind of early on, so I started writing my own song. So I think some of the better musicians in the neighborhood started taking notice that wow you know this this kid he's actually writing songs and i don't have to play covers so i kind of became maybe the hot commodity at, at an early age because i was writing my own songs. so i was able to meet uh, um, a little bit older than me merrick abrahano and rick merrick a drummer and and bobby marquez he was older than me a little bit and they kind of said, hey, his kid's writing his own songs. And Mike Torres actually introduced me to the to everybody. And he was in the neighborhood and kind of, I don't know how I came around to be, to meet Mike. I don't really remember that, but I ended up maybe playing with one of the cover bands he was in. And, uh, you know, it just kind of went on from there. Hey, we're writing songs. And that was probably the early form of Heretic right there. You know, they were just playing cover songs. And And now I'm wondering... When was the first moment, I guess, um, 
let's go back. So the first band name, what was the f- actual first band name for these cover projects? Uh, like first first bands would oh, have right. been like silly things like uh, Parish and Crystal Light with a UFO song my drummer liked. So we, we, that was a band name. Uh, then a band called Rag that kind of maybe a Van Halen kind of flavor because right in kind of rock kind of sounds. And, and then, uh, yeah, Heretic would have been probably early like high school so i'd have been maybe like 80 82 when i was thinking of hey i want to i'm writing heavier stuff now and i'd started just looking for a name and heretic came up and so you were 16 so you were 16 at this point yeah about 16 i I started around 13 maybe 14 really getting better and then you know um you know, I I'd kind of already discovered like UFO and Black Sabbath and the heavier side of things that I was kind of gravitating to, and that's what I started writing. And then, like around like high school would be tenth grade. Uh, what's that? 80, 81. You know, that's the new wave of British metal and anything Europe we love. We just gravitated to, and I just started writing, and that's when I said that this is what I want to do. And obviously you were around the L.A. area, and there was a huge scene. So talk to me a little bit about the the, the scene at, at around 80, 81, 82 era. Yeah, that, uh, that was the very beginning. We were just discovering heavy metal from from Europe. We had Ron Lafitte was, uh, went to high school with him, and he, he, we'd get all the magazines, and, and, and we'd just absorb everything. We'd go to the record shop, and what's new? What came out this week? And we'd just buy everything, like bands like tank and venom and iron maiden obviously you know um anything out of europe we just ate it up and that's when i started noticing in in la you know there's a lot of every everybody's just started metal bands popped up out of nowhere but for me personally we were influenced by europe and and maybe a little bit maybe 83, whatever, spans from up north, like San Francisco area started popping up and it just took off from there. I think LA was a little more rock and roll, a little holly, more holly rock before the metal scene really hit in like 84, 85. That's when it started getting really crazy. And now walk me through um, just, just starting Heretic. Like, obviously you were playing... You stated earlier you were playing with some of the guys, but when did it actually like form into like a solid unit kind of thing? When did you get all the players involved, and who was the original original players in the band? Yeah, the original two members would be Rick Merrick drums and Mike Torres, and then we had uh, Rick Halpin was on guitar, and uh, still friends with him on Facebook, great guy. Um, and Steve Strano on bass. He's also on, I'm on Facebook with him. So it's kind of cool. We can, everybody still keeps up with each other. Um, so that was the original. We used to practice in Merrick's garage, uh, down the street from my house. And that was the original heretic right there. And Mike was really close with Bobby Marquez and Rick. Um, he got replaced by Bobby really fast because Mike was really tight with Bob. So, and when did you guys actually start to record? Like, what was your first demo that you actually recorded? My first time in the studio was yes. recording Impulse for Metal Massacre 7. First time in the studio. Because back then, we didn't have, you know, home studios, and nobody had four tracks. So you just, you maybe had those, you know, remember those little recorders where you press <laughs> press the play and record, and you record your band, but it always sounded horrible. But that was the, my first time in the studio was 86. 
with wow. dimples. Oh my God, wow. what an experience! So walk me through that experience. Oh, what a for rush. You. <laughs> Yeah, walk me it, through it. Dude. It was. It was in Hollywood somewhere, right on like Sunset Boulevard. I don't remember the name of the studio, but just so excited. And to hear the result of what's been in your head for that long, you know, we knew what we were live. We knew we were good. We knew we sounded great. But to hear it come through with Bill Matoyer actually produced it for us. So just, you know, what he's going to make you sound like. It was amazing. I came out of there floating like, you know, it probably only took us a couple hours just to do the whole song. You know, and bam, it was done, and it was magical. We, I was just floating to hear the final result. And Amazing. Well, walk me through like just the recording process. So, did you guys actually use a click track at this point, or just jamming just as a yeah. band? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Rick Merrick was the timing master. He used to practice with a click. So, I mean, he it was no problem for him to go into the studio. He he got in with the click, blah blah boom, and then. I, I know we didn't do it live, so we would have d- done the guitars after. So, yeah, we just played to a clip. We, you know, we all had amazing timing. So Bobby was amazing as well. I'm sure the click wasn't, uh, you know, I, to bring it bring it up, I don't even remember the click back then. <laughs> it was a, kind of funny, but um, I'm sure it wasn't a problem. And and, and, what, and Mike, Mike nailed it. Mike just nailed it so fast. It was, and what, we thought we were going to take off. Right. <laughs> well, walk me through even just coming in contact with Brian Slagle and, and how that, you know, this is your first recording and stuff. And obviously you started the band a couple mm-hmm. of years earlier, but how did you even right. come in contact with, you know, Brian Slagle of Metal Blade? Well, everybody back then, everybody knew everybody. You knew Brian Slagle because he had a record shop and he, or he always had, you know, music and he was at all the shows. So everybody was just friends that were, and Brian ended up taking off. He, he was a smart one. He got the label together and signed all these bands that were popping up. But Brian was just a guy. He was just one of our friends that said, hey, you know, you're a good band. But it, it was Ron Lafitte. Our, he was our manager at the time. He, our friend kind of took took that on. And he got a deal. to hey, you know, you guys want to get on this album. And right after that, we ended up signing an EP to do an EP. But Mike Torres ended up not wanting to do an EP. I don't remember the fallout from whatever that was, but he wanted to do an album. He said, Metal Blade wants us to do an EP. And that's when he ended up leaving to go to Abattoir. Okay, so let's let's back up real quick. So around, you mentioned Ron Lafitte. So how did he come into the picture here? He was a high school friend. Just, you know, as, as we're all deciding our places, what we're going to do, what we want to be, I, I'm going to be in a metal band. I wanted, Ron was you know, befriending all these bands. He was so interested in music. And he was the guy that really introduced us to a lot of the early, you know, metal in high school. You know, we'd sit around the table and Ron would have, hey, check out this band. He was the idea guy. And so it was kind of natural for him to get into management. You know, he obviously went on to manage amazing bands and uh, made a great career out of it. Um, But he was our early guy that we kind of listened to and followed and got us, helped us get shows and, um, but it's, it's it's kind of funny that we were just guys going to metal shows and everybody's eventually got in bands or everyone started a magazine or this guy became a manager. It, we all somehow got into the industry. It was really interesting. And yeah. we're all kind of from the same neighborhood, you know. Absolutely. And one question I had, too. Why did you guys decide on Impulse as the song for for the Metal Massacre series? And I'm sure you had other songs before that. Um, 
but why did you yeah, guys we, end up landing on this specific we, track? We, yeah, we had one. Um, I think it was a song called Escape, but I don't think we ever even recorded it. That was tagged to be the song we were going to put on there. It seemed to be, it was really good live. We'd played shows and re- the fans reacted good to it. But I had just written Impulse maybe a week earlier and I said, guys, this is the song. And as soon as we learned it and put it all together in rehearsal, everyone went, okay, this is the song we got to put down. So it was a brand new song. So it was fresh in everybody's mind. So it was, the enthusiasm was there, you know. And it was just a better choice at the time. And and also, too, did you actually hear about the Metal Massacre series before? Or was, was, when Brian approached you, was that kind of like some of your first oh, recollections yeah. of it? It was, it was totally prestigious to be on. <laughs> you know, the first Metal Massacre, everybody had that, you know. So, yeah, Brian was the man. Brian was in L.A. He was the metal guy. Everyone that worked for him, you know, John Sutherland, William Howell, all every the whole everybody was just amazing at Metal Blade, and they loved music, and it was an honor to be on them when at the time we were. You know, that was the label in L.A. That was, you know, there were other labels obviously, but for me, it was people we knew, so it was a logical choice for us. And what were were you actually were you guys actually kind of going out to see shows and at Fenders and the Country Club and Waters and. I mean, there's a whole kind of scene. I'm assuming you guys were some of the guys going to the shows, not only playing them, but, you know, actually oh, attending yeah. them. So how, how big of a change was it for to you not only just to go to the shows, but to be playing the, those kind of same shows? That's what you did back then. There was a show almost every night. You know, you you couldn't miss anything. We were, you know, you, you either had a, you know, by then I was either late high schools, but my parents were were good and they'd let me go to a show if there was a show you wanted to see everybody you knew all these bands from their names and you had to see everything and if you were lucky enough to open for them that's which we were you know we opened for so many great bands we were very lucky ron did a great job um but yeah you went to everything that's what you did that's why the scene was so amazing is you just there was a show everywhere. And, you know, as time rolled on, it became you would go and flyer for your show. You'd go hang out in the parking lot and make sure everybody's coming to your show. And that became a thing for a few years as well until they stopped. They had to stop. There's so much litter on the ground afterwards. But every you went to every show. That's why the scene was so healthy, because everybody saw everybody and everyone was friends with everybody. And, um, it, it was just amazing to be a part of, and it's amazing that it happened. You know, I, to tell stories about it, it's just, I'm so blessed to be a, a part of it. Absolutely, man. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed just to, you know, get be able to tell tell the story and stuff. And it's and not, it, yeah, it's it's nice to see bands doing it now. They're kind of building their scene out in L.A. They're trying to build it up the younger bands, and it's so hard to do. But as long as they they just keep at it and and keep that tunnel of uh, just information between each other and keep it going and rolling. It eventually, it just takes off and nobody can stop it. It's like a moving train. You just got to keep at it. Absolutely. As my, as my mom says, just keep showing up. So I am wondering when the split happened, obviously you, you had, you know, your five core guys, right? And I'm just wondering when the split happened, but with, with Mike and how that kind of came to be. Mike Torres? Correct. Or how? Oh, yeah. Mike Torres, Torres, like it. 
Yeah, like I said, with Mike Torres, we uh, Ron started pushing the idea for an EP. We had enough material for an album, but at the time, I think Armored Saint had just released an EP, and Metal Blade was kind of high on, look, we want to just do a couple songs we don't want to put too much money into, and we want to see how you're going to sell. I think that's what's behind it. So they offered, hey, we want to put out an EP for you guys and see how it does, and Mike was, I think, against that. And I think he he had already probably been talking with Abattoir at the time. So he ended up just deciding, hey, they've got an album on the table. I'm going to move over to them. I don't want to do the EP. And we just had to find another singer. And that's when we found Julian, who was already, he was in a, in another, you know, bands playing around. So we knew about him. He, was, he had a great voice. And, and we found him really fast. <laughs> and, and walk me through just, I guess, just trying to find like, what was the kind of singing that you wanted to have in, in this specific project for Heretic? What kind of scene? What kind of singer? Like, what what did you want to be like a... like a? Yeah, I, I think at the time you had to have kind of a Bruce Dickinson-sounding band. That's, I think, what my ears were always hearing. I was big into Accept, so Udo was kind of a screamer. Um, so that was obviously somebody that could hold a melody but could also belt it out as well and julian fit that right away and he like i said we we went to a party saw his band play in the backyard and said that's our guy you want the job do you remember the band and, do you remember what what band um, he, was he was in a band he was in a band called herofent at the time and i don't think they recorded anything they probably did demos and stuff but he uh just really fit the bill to us and we we asked him and he agreed right away and we just started working on the songs and well how did you meet him essentially not not just seeing him live but how did you meet him as just in person again our neighborhood was all musicians everybody kind of we had like you had torrance gardena carson uh, the whole south bay area were all just young long-haired guys all in bands so everybody kind of knew everybody and everybody was playing and everybody knew each other and you'd go see everybody's band. And, and so, you know, when word got out, Hey, this band needs a singer. Well, everybody was knew about it already. So it was healthy. It was amazing. And it just so many great musicians came out of our little South Bay area. It's, it's I, you, too many to even name. <laughs> and it's all from our era. It's just amazing. It is. Now walk me through. It was healthy. It was, you know what it was? It was a healthy competition that everybody always wanted to outdo each other, and you always wanted to be heavier. You wanted to, you know, outdo each other. But it was great and, for the. Yeah. It was great for music because out of that competition came all this great music from the South Bay. And walk me through just the audition process for Julian, if you don't mind, because I neglected to touch on it during his interview. He probably sang impulse screamed and we said you got the job (laughs) you know he had the look you you had to have a good look and at the time you had to have the hair and the look and the leather and the um but his his voice he he was a screamer so he was not he was a natural fit for us and uh, and that was it And and he i think maybe he learned the songs really fast and we got that ep going right away and when i Right, and and uh, not to cut you off, but the EP when, came out the the, right. e, the EP came out the same year as Metal Masker, so we must have done it fast. <laughs> right now, walk me through the name change of him. 
Like when when was he Julian to you? Was he always Julian? Oh yeah, he was a uh, uh, Ruben was his real name, but I I don't really know to this date. It's kind of a mystery, so I don't really ask. He just decided he needed to change his name from his old neighborhood. Came from maybe a rougher neighborhood and kind of wanted to put a lot of that behind him, so he kind of changed his name and moved to a little bit different area and just decided to take up music to get healthy and. You know, I think he came from maybe a little bit of a gang background. Um, ah, but, okay. So, the story, the story you know, I, I don't know. You can, I know you've talked to him. I don't know if he ever explained that to you before, but that was kind of my take on it. it was just, I, I just never asked or bothered. Or, that's <laughs> well, your name? Cool. Well, well, the thing is, is so he he told on this show where I think he said it came from like Armored Saint or something or so, like somebody pointed at him and said Julian, and then every, it, the name just kind of stuck. Oh, same. So. I think there I you go. Yeah, I just thought that was pretty cool. I kind of just answered my own question. <laughs> yeah, you probably you have better memory than me. Yeah, I, I see. I I've always known him as Julian, but I did know his name as Ruben, but that was just because he told me. Um, but um, I've just always known him as Julian. So, and now, so he, Julian comes into the fold. He's your new singer. What is the response? I guess just from him playing the live shows, even even before the EP. Oh, we were instantly just we we opened for everybody. Ron Lafitte was our manager at the time. Just we we had we opened for Motorhead, the Plasmatics, uh, Armored Saint, and Saxon, and any great show that came through town, we were lucky enough to get. And Julian was just such a great frontman that the response to him was amazing, and just he clicked right away. Um, the thing when once we finally got to into the recording, we back then you had a time schedule. You had to do it. We had I think a weekend or whatever we had to do it. And Julian was sick as a dog with a flu, and that's he had to do the vocals that weekend. And he soldiered through it and did it, and bless his heart, he gave everything he could. You know, in between takes, he's sitting over a, a you know a bowl of menthol with a towel over his head, trying to like clear his lungs out so he can sing another track. Um, but I think once it was done, Metal Blade kind of talked to Lafitte about saying, "Hey, we're not really happy with the way the vocals came out." And you know, to us, we loved it. We're hey, this is our band. What are you talking about? But it started a movement that through Lafitte that I think Ron's probably started talking with other bands and looking for a singer. And that's when it just started moving forward and kind of pressure from the label to replace Julian came, came about. And now let, let me let me ask you this. How do you guys always choose the songs for, for each of the records, right? Because I know, I know like... Are they always all? Do they always have to be new songs? Because I know for torture you had previous songs even before before this. So why did none of those ever make it? And why the cover track? It, it just oh covers. Oh, I mean, I thought you were saying uh, yeah, yeah, sounds no, for the album. Well, no, no, I'm talking songs. So like you had previous songs before that never made any records. So I'm just wondering why these batch of songs for this specific release yeah, and, and what uh, why the cover track and not an original instead it, it would just be i don't know that's a really good question other than we maybe hey let's bring in a cover tune that people will know and um we were doing that song actually earlier that was a, mike torres actually introduced writing with the angels so 
that was it was a he learned it from uh samson bruce dickinson sang it and so heretic had always that was kind of an early song that we were doing so it almost became one of our originals because we've been playing it for a few years you know so we didn't think of it as somebody else's song um i don't know the process of elimination we just went through what songs we thought were our best live ones at the time and recorded those we had you know a whole live set at the time but we just chose uh, writing just because it was kind of a fan favorite and seemed logical to put a cover on that and some you know maybe europe might recognize i think that was the big goal to get noticed over there for us as well gotcha and also too why um i i, I love the fact that that it's like this is that the last track you know the title track is a fucking it's an instrumental it's not even a yeah so that's kind of cool this is one of the only ones that you guys pretty much have ever that's, done yeah, in your but, career that's the Michael Schenker influence in me. He always had an instrumental on all the UFO albums. And I always loved to just, why didn't he put lyrics to that? Or, you know, that's a great riff. I, I could write a whole song around that. And so, I don't know. I, I think at early point, I decided I'm going to put an instrumental on all my albums. So I've tried to do that with every album. And uh, I think other than in Reverend, <laughs> but every Heretic album will have an instrumental on there where I can show maybe some of my acoustic side and, my, you know, a soulful singing solo and show that side of myself as well as a writer. Absolutely. I love it, dude. Now let's, let's move forward. So just talk to me about the, um, the cover concept for Torture Knows No Boundaries. I know you are, you know, the master of the artworks when it came to Heretics. So what were you thinking at the time in, in 1986 for Torture Knows No Boundaries for the, just the album cover itself? That was actually something that Ron Lafitte found. It was just a piece of art that I think it was on a magazine cover. And he goes, dude, look at this. And it was amazing. It was dark and, you know, it was rod iron thing going through this guy's face or whatever it was representing. And he goes, this is torture knows no boundary. And I said, yeah, cool. I love the colors. Let's do it. You know, I'm, uh, I'm an artist. So, you know, I kind of really appreciated the painting. And just we bought the rights through the magazine because it was already published, so it was easy to get the rights to the artist, and, and that became the cover. Absolutely. And walk me through uh, uh, just, I guess, the whole layout of it. It doesn't feature any of your bandmates. It doesn't feature any of your names. It's literally just a thanks list and lyrics. So, how? What was your initial reaction just from from getting the the record in your hands at that point? The EP, it, it, I think it had live pictures on the back, didn't it? Yeah, it has live pictures. I'm just track. saying it, it doesn't have um, your like your bandmates' names. It, it literally is just your thanks list and lyrics. So I was just curious as to your thoughts on that. Oh, well, if we were young, I probably just flashed right over it and went, wow, this is, this is great. This is me. This is us. You know, um, yeah, I, don't, I never really even noticed that it doesn't have band names on there really interesting i'm gonna have to go look at it now <laughs> <laughs> well okay so let's move forward we're stupid then. young kids right there <laughs> so let's let's move forward so what what is the initial reaction to torture knows no boundaries um it, it was good i mean we were i you know for the time we were really i felt we were doing really good in la every show we got more people showed up and there was a buzz rising the record didn't draw too much sales i don't know if it's a promotion or uh, we didn't we really didn't tour at that point yet you know we were still pretty young 
So we're trying to figure it out and okay, how do we, what do we, what do we need to do? We, we got jumping on doing the record fairly soon after doing the EP. So we kind of just uh, didn't sell hot off the table. So, okay, well, let's move on. And that's when Julian kind of pushed out and we knew Mike Howe from the band snare and talked to him and he disagreed right away from what I remember. And just, you know, we just moved on and started breaking point right away and just kind of let the EP just kind of fade away. That's an interesting point. So obviously we've, if you go back and listen to the Julian episode, um, you'll obviously have that whole, that whole experience for, for, for the heretic camp. So I'm not going to get into that cause it's already been told, but I, what I, what I want to ask is that, after I guess you know, so you've been talking, and then you had been rehearsing with Mike before, to my understanding. Before we got rid of Julian. Correct. Yeah, you were auditioning him, like in the uh, in the rehearsal spaces. From from my understanding, I think. I, yeah, he would have rehearsed with us at that rehearsal studio because that's where all our equipment was. Um, I don't really remember the the logistics of it all and how it all went down. Uh, I know it was horrible for me. Julian was such a close friend and you know um but i yeah I, I don't remember if it was going on at the same time or if we did mike and then said okay yeah he's the right singer for us and then made, we made the decision uh maybe that's how it went down i, I don't really remember but mike came on and, and we just started rolling again and you did you audition drummers at this point too so you were doing both no, at the same time no I, rick rick was he was the drummer through everything until until Mike Howell left, Rick Merrick was through everything. He was he was the backbone. He was the he was the business guy. He did all the flyers. He did all. Hey guys, we got a gig. He he was our our steamroller. Gotcha. Because I know Julian had told the story where John Tempesta kind of came in and was playing on his drum set. So I was just curious as to that oh, whole yeah. story. Yeah. No, he wasn't playing on. I think he was playing on. Um, it was another band we shared the room with. Um, Vermin. I think he played on that kit. Um, but, uh, yeah, Tempesta played with us. I, I don't know that there was an intention for him to be in the band, but, um, it was nice to jam with him, but you know, he was, he was moving on. He was moving up North and he needed a paying band. And, you know, we, I think we just wanted to play with a good drummer like that, you know, and just got the experience out of it. But I, 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 I don't remember ever wanting to replace Merrick. Gotcha. I don't remember that conversation ever. Okay. Personally. Cool. Perfect. Um, now, now let's talk about KNAC real quick. Because KNEC was relatively new in, in 1986 when the Torture Knows the Boundaries EP kind of came out. I know Julian's had said that they had played maybe Whitechapel, if I'm not mistaken. So I, my question to you, is, and I've asked him this, I want your perspective, is how big of a role did KNEC play into your guys' career at this specific moment in, your, in, your, in 1986? Oh, if they would have played us more, it would have been even bigger. But yeah, they, they were amazing to have that label around... I mean, that station around was just absolutely, every band wanted to get interviewed on there. You wanted to have your song played. You listened to the, you know, the weekend metal and the, uh, you just, they were absolutely amazing. There was another station out of Redondo Beach. I think it was called K-West that we used to do interviews on. It was a, just really local radio. Um, and they used to play early Heretic as well. But, you know, you hear yourself on the radio for the first time. It's just mind blowing. You know, you think, wow, I made it. You know, everybody's hearing us now. So and I, we owe them a lot. I mean, they don't, I'm sure didn't play us very much, but we got our share of, you know, probably riding with the angels or Whitechapel or 
you know, they, they played us probably a few times, but every band wanted to be on Candy C. So you were lucky if you got a shot to get played on that. And w- do you remember if it was during like Manic Metal? So if people listening in, Manic Metal was like, it was, I guess, every Monday. I have a couple cassettes from my dad he, who thankfully yeah. recorded it off the radio. So I, you know, did it to digital so I can listen to it at any time. But Manic Metal was yeah, like this, this program, like 9 to 11, they would do, or 9 to, I don't know, it was like an hour or so, hour or two. And they would literally play the hardest, fastest bands in metal, period, at that specific moment. So it was mostly thrash, and it was just... And I'm just wondering if Heretic was one of those bands that was played on Manic Metal, or if it was played just during regular rotation on, like, another show. Yeah, no, uh, it, it wouldn't have been during regular rotation. We were, we were just a young local band, so I, my recollection is that, it, yeah, it was on a specialty show. I don't know if it was necessarily on a thrash show, because we weren't necessarily considered a thrash band at the time, but... Um, it was probably on some kind of hey, some kind of weekend metal show where we got played to start with, and then maybe played us a few times in the daytime. Sometime where nobody would probably hear us, but um, it wasn't you know it wasn't a lot of radio play. But I do remember hearing we had a we had a party at, at some point, but I think that was for the the, the other station K West. To now that I think about it, well, tell me about but that. We were story. able to hear ourselves. Yeah, tell me about this. Um, so well, you had a party for what, the, the, the EP itself or just yeah, the album? Or? No, the, the, now that I think about it, this was older. This was when uh, they played something that was a live track that we gave them. It probably sounded horrible, but K-West was really cool. They'd just say, hey, this is a local band, Heretic, and this is a song. I don't know what song they would have played, but we, we knew what time it was coming on, and we all listened, and we all had a party at Mike's house, and um, I, I do remember that was a fascinating moment. Just, wow, we're on the radio. This is amazing. You know, you know, every musician's dream is to hear yourself through the airwaves. And um, just, I wish it could have been more. You know, I hear myself every day would be amazing. Absolutely. And that's what that's what I do every day. That's why, I cre- you know, you have to create you have to create those platforms. Sadly, nowadays, you know, it's not like it. Yeah. How it was back then. Yeah. So. Let's move forward, man. So, why why Mike Howell? Did you audition other people before him? Um, he was the main guy. He was the main frontman in in LA at the time. I, I in my opinion, he was. His snare was a tough band. They were from Detroit. He had an attitude and you know, kind of growled and um, seemed like a nice guy, you know? So we met him and just said, Hey, you know, would you like to try out? Cause it, the snare guys, they all moved out from Detroit together. So they were really tight. So I was really shocked that he would even consider the idea because snare was, they were like brothers. It was three brothers and then Mike. And for some reason he decided to listen to us and come and audition. And it just moved from there. It moved really fast. And do you, off the top of your recollection, do you remember him kind of using the same cadences as Julian when it came to like how he delivered his vocals? Uh, no, he had his own. He had his own vibe. He stayed close with the older tracks. He did stay close to what Julian did, and you know they were already kind of created. So in my ear, for him to do something weird, you know I that song has already been in my head for two years now, and now you want to change it was kind of a. Sometimes I'd give him a little bit of leeway, but, you know, I was the main writer, so they were, uh, he, he pretty much stuck to the, the game plan that was already laid down. But he had his own way of singing, you know, notes. And I ended up having to adapt 
or newer songs on the way he would pronounce words. So I'd listen to the way he would sing and I'd find out better phrasings for him for the newer songs and that made more sense to him. And what was your initial reaction, I guess, just, just going into this the studio for Breaking Point? So now we're, we're obviously in 1988, so you're recording Breaking Point. Oh, yeah. You, I think you went back to Bill Matoyer, if I'm not mistaken, but you also had yeah. another helping hand, um, you know, Kurt Vanderhoof of, of Metal Church. Yeah. So walk me how walk me through how that kind of came into the fold, and not and why not just work with Bill Matoyer at that time? Uh, well, we know now what that was. It was the coup was beginning to happen. We were basically a demo tape for Metal Church. Unfortunately, we find years of years later you find that out. But Kurt Vanderhoof, you know, he's in Metal Church. Everybody kind of knew him. Their their album sounded amazing. Um, it was basically Ron Lafitte's idea again our manager at the time said hey let's bring him in he can co-produce with Bill um, you know the Metal Church album sound amazing he'll get you that sound which he didn't he really didn't work on too much he just used our amps and we plugged him in and that's what the sound we got was our uh, Wisson amps old Wisson I don't think they're around anymore um, uh, kind of a a great experience and kind of a surreal experience at the same time. You know, it was my first time recording a whole album. You know, you feel, wow, we're really doing this. And it's amazing to, you know, the, the whole process and how hard it is and the time it takes to do everything. And, you know, we took weeks, I think probably uh, three or four days for drums and then maybe uh, four days for guitars. And then so a total of two weeks, probably, you know, with the vocals and, um, just, you know, for learning it for the first time and doing it, it was a fun process. But Vanderhoof, unfortunately, really was not a huge part of the picture. And I, I look back on it and I go, wow, we were just young kids not realizing what was taking place. You know, you, and I'm wondering not to not to keep cutting you off and stuff because I'm just very passionate about it because I'm you know Metal Church literally is my favorite metal band of all time. And I'm wondering um because I, I, it's been well documented on this show that Julian had told you guys what was going to happen, and it literally happened. So I'm just wondering, it, it must have been just you guys just being young and naive and thinking, oh, it's not going to happen this way kind of thing. Uh, that's basically it, yeah. Um, I think it was really late in the game, too, when we when Julian was warning us about what's going on. Uh, we were already deep in the album, and you know, playing shows, everything looked okay. And I don't know what Mike was waiting for, you know, maybe to see if we took off, maybe if we sold a hundred thousand records right off the bat, maybe he'd stay. But, you know, there was really no huge jump for heretic sales off the record. And I'm sure he made the decision really easy for him. Uh, I'm going to go with metal church and they're on a major label. And yeah, it was, it I was I was the naive one. I was like blindsided. I got punched in the jaw when he told me he was leaving. I'm like, you're kidding me. You know, really? We just did an album. We're going to go on tour with Star. You know, what are you talking about? Wow. So, so, so like, you, were, you were literally going to go just just on the road, and then this kind of happened. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we had we had shows in Texas and Arizona. We were going to go up the up the coast, up to San Francisco, and with Hellstar, all planned. And, Bam! Drops a bomb on us, and uh, I just—I I don't know. 
it really, really sore spot with me. And I'm not but, trying to I'm hey, not trying to put salt in the wound here. I'm just just trying to get the the story out. So, <laughs> I guess I guess after what was the what was like? Let's back up real quick and just just tell me the initial reaction to the Breaking Point album. This is your first album, just as you know, a band. This is your first album for you as a songwriter because you're the primary songwriter. Obviously, you had incorporated some keyboards in it, which was awesome at the time because mm-hmm. who was doing that, really? Right. And, and, and especially for extreme metal, because at this point, you know, Heretic was an extreme metal band for the time. Um, now I'm right. just I'm just curious what the initial reaction towards that all all, all the the encompasses and aspects of of music that you guys incorporated in the album. What was that that um, initial reaction from other people or from myself? Other people and you know how how it, the sales yeah, were and, I, I, and all I, that stuff. I, I, right. I, I wish it would have sounded heavier. I mean, the sound we wanted was the dark. You know, we wanted you know. Unfortunately, I don't know why that guitar sound didn't come there because the songs have they incorporate all the muting of the E, all the sound. It was there in my head. Um, I, I wish we could have gotten a, a heavier sound off that record, but I am to this day so proud of all those songs. And so that's a band that has worked on all those songs for years. And that, you know, we, the, the song called the search or a time and short, those songs are just to this day in my head, it's magical. When I hear the, I, what we did to them and the, going through the process of playing them. I love it, but it, it didn't get great reviews. Um, from what I remember, it was mixed. Some, some great, some, uh, yeah. Great band, um, but we Mike Howe left as it got released, so there was really no reason to, for Metal Blade to promote it. So it just, like us, another, like the EP, kind of fell by the wayside, and we had to move on and figure out what we were going to do. It could have, you know, uh, you know, years later, you see how what people consider it maybe a kind of a classic metal album. At the time, it just kind of got discarded. So... Uh, if we could have kept it going, it would have been, you know, heretic album after every year. We were doing an album every year. You know, we'd have that history. But we moved on and formed a reverend after that. So Mike Howe went on to his career, and we just we just moved on. That's what you did. We were songwriters. Me and Dennis were a powerhouse. We just we had songs coming out of our ears. So we weren't worried, but we were very disappointed, obviously. But we knew we'd land on our feet and keep moving. Right, and and I mean, like I said, um, I posted about it too. I think "Shifting Fire" is just a super underrated track from you guys. It's super heavy. It just the fucking chorus, everything about it is just awesome. I wish you would play more songs from that specific album live. I get why you don't, um, but at the same time, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you have some great stuff in yeah. there, dude. Yeah, there. You know, there are a few songs that what we try to do. To be fair is if Julian started a song, we we can incorporate those, like And Kingdoms Fall, Heretic, uh, Gun, you know, he actually was part of Gunpoint, which became Reverend, you know. So those some of those songs go back a long ways. That, so we try to be fair to Julian and say, you actually were part of the original process of writing this song. Let's do only those songs. And then if, if it was written while Mike Howe was in the band, we'll, we'll just move on from those songs. Unfortunately, Shifting Fire is... That was one of Dennis's that he worked on with Mike Howe. So, oh, um, that's too bad because that's a great song. Um, yeah, it is a great song. Dennis is a powerful writer, man. I mean, 
but I guess in, in Reverend we were fifty we were fifty fifty. In Heretic was uh, maybe I was like eighty percent of the songs, but in Reverend we were fifty fifty in songwriting. So he he had a lot of songs in him for sure. And and like I said, dude, this is great songs all around. I'm not trying to you know pick apart. It just I wish I I wish I could be able to hear those songs. Even Portrait of Faith, I would love to hear live. I've never been I've been to so many Heretic shows, never heard it live. Yeah. Hopefully that'll change soon. Um, but you know what you, you you no you are the one that has started that momentum for that song because you posted it before, and so we we're that's in our set now. So just to give you hope there, we have learned that song. I'm excited. So that will be. <laughs> That will be played. <laughs> no, but just like the riff in general, it's just, it's so, it it's is. so it's underrated. Cool, it's an F sharp, so it's got a different sound for what, you know, it's a normal E, so it's got just great riffs. You it's know, just so. heavy. It's just fucking heavy for a night, especially for yeah. 1986. I mean, what did you have in 1986? Master of Puppets, Rain and Blood. So obviously that kind of probably seeped into your guys' writing style mm-hmm. around that time. Now, now here's, here's, here's the, the question I'm going to ask. After 1988, why was it important for you to get with David Wayne? Why not get Julian back into the fold for Heretic after kind of Mike Howell, you know, went on to Metal Church? Yeah, again, we were just listening. You know what? Me and Dennis, we were just songwriters. We just wanted to write. We didn't. I never enjoy the business part of it. I, I, my mind, there's something missing in my brain that does not allow me to pay attention to the business part of the band. I, so I've listened to a lot of people in my career and I've listened to, you know, people, you know, we were trying to, we were auditioning singers, but everyone was saying, Hey, Dave Wayne just left metal church. He's the most logical, you know, person to put in with you guys. It's a great story. You guys swap singers. There's going to be press and Dave Wayne's, you know, a seasoned veteran. He's got a name. It, so it was kind of a logical decision, but you know, it's, he was an interesting guy. I got to say for sure, but it was, it wasn't e- an easy decision for us, but we decided to go with Dave. We, we, he came in the studio. We had a demo already prepared a song. One of mine, uh, I think it was called well of souls. And he, we gave it to him and a week later he came in, wrote lyrics to it and recorded it. And we went, wow, that's the best we've heard out of all the singers we've been trying out. So he's got the name. Let's go with him. And that's how it started. And it's been well documented. He did not want to call the band Heretic for maybe yeah. obvious reasons. It would be kind of weird. And I get I get that. How did you guys decide on, on Reverend itself, just as a name? Uh, that was all Dave. He, he was the Reverend of Metal Church. So that was his idea. I, I am so proud of the logo. I designed it. That's a, another classic logo, I think, personally. Um but he, it was all Dave. He just said, it's going to be called Reverend. I've come up with this. I imitate his voice. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was easy for us. So Reverend, I hated the name to begin with. I was like, oh, another religious thing. Like, okay, but whatever. doesn't matter. I'm not big into religion. So that's just, I'm in a band called Heretic and Reverend. So go figure. Walk me through just like the next the next phase, I guess. So it's 1989. You guys decide to, you know, it's literally Heretic minus the singer, and it's David Wayne. So now you, you're Reverend. Walk me through just the EP process and, and kind of how, you know, you decided to write differently for David Wayne as opposed to, say, Mike Howe or Julian, because he's kind of a different singer. Yeah. 
Well, what happened after after Mike Howlett, Rick Merrick, and Bob Marquez kind of decided, look, I don't want to go through looking for another singer. It's, uh, I'm kind of done with it. Bob wanted to move on to kind of more of a L.A. sound, a rock sound. Rick Merrick was just kind of tired of the whole thing at the time. And decided, they both decided to leave and do other things. So we found... Um, yeah, obviously Stu had already been a really close friend of Dennis's and from the neighborhood, amazing guitar player. So we just, he had already kind of been filling in with Heretic after Bob left. So we were playing together as Heretic, but we replaced Bobby with Stu and then formed a Reverend really is what, what happened. And we had to find a drummer at the time. So that's when we found somebody from Seattle, Scott Vogel, that Dave knew. A uh, really great kid. Man, he was a great drummer. And just kind of formed from there. Early demos were early Heretic songs. You know, all those, that EP is all Heretic, but with Dave singing. So um, it, that was, the hardest part was finding a label. We thought it'd be like, damn, super easy. But at the time, I think labels were kind of leery of metal, kind of getting towards the end. So it was a little hard for us to find something, but we ended up with Charisma. And did the EP fairly fast. So I know, I know that 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 David Wayne was a primarily you know he was song, a, a primary songwriter in in Metal Church where he wrote music and lyrics. Now, did that come into the the Reverend EP from 1989, or did that kind of happen a little bit later in uh, in your guys's career? Yeah, I think writing with Metal Church was more Dave Wayne involved because what me and Dennis would do is we would bring in a whole song. Both of us wrote lyrics. Both of us wrote melody lines. Both of, I would bring in a finished song to rehearsal and say, hey, guys, I got a new song. So I think it was easier for Dave. Dave was like, wow, these, these kids really know how to write and just made it easier for him. So he didn't necessarily have to worry about putting in so much effort. But, I mean, he did where he could fit in. If he, liked it, he had an idea for a different melody line or um, maybe a verse here and there, but something I did maybe I didn't do, finish the second verse and he would end up finishing the verse but me and Dennis would basically bring in whole songs um, Power of Persuasion was one I know off the EP that Dave wrote all the lyrics for and came up with the chorus and everything but everything else was me and Dennis we wrote all the, most of all the lyrics and all the melodies even through World Won't Miss You that's all me and Dennis and we'll get to that so, so what is the initial reaction at this point Dave leaves Metal Church not leaves, but he's essentially fired from Metal Church. If, from, from my understanding, right. is, if, if, from just doing interviews with the Heretic Camp and learning more about this, is he was fired from Metal Church. He comes, you know, you guys, you know, either give him a call or audition him and say, yeah, this is the guy for, you know, for us. Dave wants to change the name to Her to uh, to Reverend because he doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to be in Heretic. He thinks it's kind of weird, understandably. But what is the initial reaction to the first time that they're going to hear that these people, meaning people, meaning, you know, the the whole world is going to hear the new thing from, quote unquote, David Wayne at this point? Because he's so, you know, he's a big commodity. I'm not going to, like, sugarcoat it mm -hmm. for you. What is the initial reaction for the CP? Yeah, the, the, you know, there was interest. Uh, we, we played a few shows locally just to kind of get a vibe and, uh, you know, we were a seasoned band already. Heretic was, had been playing for you know, years live, and Dave was, um, you know, he's been on stage a thousand times. So, um, 
initially, I don't think the album did, again, didn't do too great. I don't know why it wasn't promoted, really. Um, we sh- probably should have toured for a while and did more. Um, but we kind of, I, I don't know. I, I, my experience with Dave is kind of interesting over the years. It, it just uh, kind of in it maybe a little bit more for the money than necessarily wanting to play as much as he did. I mean, I don't want to badmouth him, RIP, but um, I wish we could have done so much more with Reverend. We, did, we didn't tour enough. We didn't promote. You know, as Heretic, we wanted to hire publicists and we wanted to, we got to get our management doing more, doing more. Just always seemed to be kind of tugged away and put in the backside. Yeah, I'll just keep writing, keep doing more songs. And that's what we did. So I think Reverend could have been so much more. We just didn't tour. I don't know if the metal scene was dying. The, the record label didn't want to put money into us. At that time, once the EP came out, Caroline was got uh, yeah. Caroline wasn't putting money into us really. They just put the album out just to put it out. Um, we were already working on "World Won't Miss You," the next album. So we were working on trying to get signed, you know, because Caroline, I guess, didn't want to do an album with us. So we were looking for some. I think we were looking for money. Bands want to sign the most. Who's going to give us the most uh, money? Like I said, unfortunately with Dave, that's I think at, at that point in his career is I think what he wanted, and. Like I said, I, I'm not that business guy, so I just kind of followed everybody, and I wrote songs, tried to make a great album, and so I my my whole my whole career I kind of look back and I go, wow, I just I was sleepwalking through the whole thing, my whole career. I I, I can't complain about it because I okayed everything, obviously, but I was just the songwriter. That's who I was. I'm Brian Corbin. I write songs, and I've made these albums that I love, and I'm proud of them. So many parts of the business, I wish I would have paid more attention to, but you can't change that, you know. And to this day, even with Heretic, you know, I I really don't put a whole lot into promotion and and, and doing things. I I post on Facebook here and there, you know, but I just I just love music, but I I don't want to put the effort into it. I guess I'm lazy. That's what I should say. I should say it. I'm lazy. <laughs> well, we're going to try and help you out here and give you some some promotion, which, you know, you guys absolutely deserve. Because I, I still say, dude, that you guys are a cut above the rest of your guys' peers, and it's no knock to them. I just, I maybe because I'm a huge Metal Church fan and you have history, I don't know. I just think that your songs are just way better. They're, they're, they just need to be heard more. So let's get back on track here. Um Let's go to the World Won't Miss You album. And and let's even let's even go before that. Why not why not get Julian back into the fold? I don't know. I guess we'd kinda already moved on. Um Julian was in a band. He was in a band Stone Soldier. Um they were doing great. They were playing live shows and opening for everybody and he kinda had his vibe going. You know, he was happy with his buddies. He had he had brothers, you know, so uh, I guess we just didn't want to disrupt that or we were, I was happy. He was happy. And literally when Mike Howe left, obviously he's going to a band that Dave Wayne had just been fired from. So that started immediately. That wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, Dave was out of a band for a year and we decided to go look, hunt him down. It was like, that was the talk. Hey, who's going to get Dave Wayne now? So it, it happened really fast. So, you know, we, we looked for a singer for a while but 
I think the Dave Wayne thing happened, you know, it was kind of immediate because at least with the label saying, hey, you need to get this guy. He's available and he's got a name and it's a great story. That's who you should be looking at. So they wanted to sell. They wanted to sell the story. That's what that means. It's like a publicity. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of better to go with a name. He's got a name already created. It's going to be good for you guys. And at the time, we didn't know we'd be changing the name from Heretic, but it wasn't a huge sacrifice. I don't think at the time. Hey, make a new band. Okay, cool. And we'll move on. So that's what we did. We were just young guys that just wanted to play and become rock stars. That's what we wanted to do, and we moved on and made some good albums and. Absolutely, man. And I'm not discrediting that at all. I'm just asking the questions here. So let's go to World Won't Miss You. Um, <laughs> so the world has kind of changed from, you know, 1990. Uh, and during this time, what was your initial, like, what was the initial writing process for World Won't Miss You? Uh, just whatever was coming up in my head, you know. Uh, world Won't Miss You, I know, was probably one of the early songs. It's an anti-drug song. Um, Heretic had a few too. I'd seen friends go through a lot of problems. It's always been a kind of a core issue with me. Uh, I, I never, luckily, never got into drugs and never had problems with, you know, worrying about your life and loved ones. And you have to go through. Um, I've seen friends go through some terrible things. And that's, I think, one of the early songs. Um, just kind of, I don't know if I was writing it about personal experience, but. That was, I know, an early song that I wrote, and, and Gunpoint was a heretic song, kind of about just rebellion and youth and, and heavy metal. And those were the two early ones. But like I said, Dennis would come in with a song, and I'd go, oh my God, I gotta just get write a better song than him. You know, it was healthy. It was a great competition between us. So when Dennis would bring something in, I'd want to write something heavier, and we just kept bringing in song after song after song. So. I know it overwhelmed Dave, you know, because we would be, we're just ridiculous writers, you know. And so we, it's kind of hard to pick sometimes, you know. There's so many songs that just fall by the wayside that, you know, friends will remind me, hey, you remember this song? And, no, wow. So if it didn't get recorded, it just kind of falls into nowhere. And why, why scattered wits? I guess just for the single for the album, and and you guys, and and. And even that, walk me through the video process because the music this is pretty much your first quote unquote music video that you've ever done, and as far as I'm concerned, yeah. so walk me through why that process, why that song and, and the process of just the video itself it was it was the power metal ballad it was that's a Dennis song that's Dennis O'Hara um scattered with kind of about insanity and um uh, I'm not really, maybe, maybe that's what he's writing about, but just a really good power. But I know Dave helped him with some of the lyrics on that one. Uh, seemed to be a powerful tune off the song. And at the time, you know, MTV's kind of pushing towards ballads. You wanted to get on MTV. That's what you had to do at the time. Um, so we just, we chose that song and we got to fly to New York and we filmed it at, uh, oh, what was that place called? Old Church Club but it's just amazing experience with filming the video and uh, yeah, it probably got played three or four times on MTV and that was about it. We spent a lot of money on it and didn't do a whole lot, but we, with that album, we were able to actually tour. We were out for, with Annihilator and we were supposed to tour for two months. It got cut to one because of attendance. People just 
it wasn't metal was unfortunately kind of dying at the time. Seattle was taking over and we were kind of like riding that dying horse, trying as much as we could to, you know, keep going. And so that's what we did. We just stayed out as long as we could. I, I, I was born to be on tour. I just, I, that was the best time of my life. I, I could stay out for years, you know, just made for it, but it's not for everybody. It's hard. Like, you know, you don't, you don't even know what day it is. You know, you're just out there and, a new club and you play pool for a while that you sound check and that's your day, you know? Absolutely. And you guys were signed to the same label as the EP, if I'm not mistaken, or when, or did that change for you? So, uh, to sign with charisma. Correct. Yeah. That, that was when we did world won't miss you. And uh, they, they put initially a little bit of money into us. Um, we, uh, you know, they gave us money and then we did our own tour. We paid for it out of whatever money they gave us and for the recording and for the tour. And we did as much as we could. Obviously, when, once it ended, we wanted to go back out and just said, hey, now we started. Why are we stopping? Unfortunately, we just never went back out. And why do you think that is? Dave. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, uh, Dave, gosh, he just... He, he's a great singer. He's beloved by so many people, but just, I think it, I don't know if he was just kind of tired of it or we would rehearse and, but we'd rehearse without Dave. It was just, we'd get everything tight and he'd come in work on some lyrics for a while and we wouldn't see him for a while. And now there, and I asked Angelo this, I want to ask you if, cause there's been a rumor and Angelo kind of said that it was true during the play God record. And I'm wondering for you, did, did Dave had this tradition where he would either record nude for a song or something like that? Like that was a thing. I'm just, I'm just yeah. wondering if that was for the, the World Won't Miss You record. Yeah, World Won't Miss You, he did a whole private thing. Nobody was allowed. He did a whole, I want to say pentagram with candles. And he did a whole ritual to bless the album or whatever. I don't know what he was doing, but... We weren't invited. He did it. And, um, yeah, we were retarded. We were, you know, young kids. We'd record in our underwear late at night. You get loopy. You know, you're three in the morning. You're still trying to get the drum track down. We're all stripped down. And, yeah, that's what that was, Dave. It was kind of a joke. Hey, get down to your underwear, you know. So that's, that's kind of – it wasn't necessarily his thing, but it was all of us just being morons. <laughs> what is all – what is all the the reaction, I guess, to the Reverend kind of camp for you? Because I know you've done like some European stuff. Um, is you know, and, and people bring records for you to sign and stuff. Do they have Reverend records for you to sign? Is there a lot of that, or is it mainly the Heretic camp for you? Or yeah, yeah, we played uh, Headbangers Open Air, and there were people with my entire collection, you know, so, you know, he might've had Dave's signature from two years earlier and he got maybe me and, and nobody else was in the band. So yeah, you know, he had the two signatures. I signed everything. I, you know, I love it, you know, but there's some great, great fans out there. My gosh, when they, I'd see him pulling out album after album. It's like, wow, the, the pride just oh, poured out of me. It was great. Absolutely. And by the way, for the record, for everyone else listening, um, the two Reverend records are fucking fantastic. Um, despite everything else that's gone into it, the songwriting's great. Um, I love Dave's vocal performance. Your 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 yeah. picking hand is just absolutely phenomenal when it comes to like the triplets and and everything. Um, so I don't think you get yeah, as much. It. I don't think you get as much credit for that. So I'm just giving you some credit. 
as far as your your rhythm uh-huh. style because you're a great rhythm player. I don't think people yeah people might it. forget that. You know what I mean? And us musicians yeah. like to hear yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, Reverend was a different band from Heretic. We tried to just move ahead, and so we got a, I think, a little bit of a, a heavier sound, you know, a heavier writing style, more thrash style with Reverend. Um, but with Heretic, I've always kind of been more classic metal sounding, so I don't necessarily write the dilla 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 with it so much. I kind of keep it more accept feel, and bands that I was influenced early kind of keep Heretic early Motorhead, things like that, you know, upbeat, but more classic metal, but Reverend was definitely, I think, our thrash period where we, we tried to write faster consciously. We tried to be, you know, more of a a, a heavier band than Heretic was. Honestly, but for, for the record, the, I think the EP is my favorite. Those the, those original songs are just so brutal. Even going back and listening to them, I go, wow, that's some good stuff right there. And, and honestly, I think you guys had more variety in Reverend as opposed to Heretic, which obviously, and, and my, again, my apologies for it in advance for a couple of interviews beforehand, but I was always pushing you guys to do more of that kind of variety in your music. I just always felt yeah. Reverend had that variety. You know, you wrote more ballady kind of things. You wrote, you know, you had more more orchestrated pieces, you know, that, Rev, that yeah, Heretic yeah. kind of lost around, you know, the Mike Howe, or, or not even that, but the the when Julian came back into the fold, which we'll get to. But I always just felt that there there needed to be more. I expected more because of maybe the earlier records kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think with with I don't know. You evolve as a writer, and at the time, you write to with Reverend. You know, there was the MTV, so you were kind of maybe looking always for a ballad or always having something that could possibly get in a video. Then once the videos kind of moved out of the picture, it's not so important to get on a video anymore. I think as a writer, you just evolve. And I just, I don't write in any particular direction. I write whatever comes out. I don't sit down to go, okay, I'm going to go write a song right now. I, my hands tell me, Brian, pick up a guitar. And I do. I just follow. I write down and I record. I, I record everything I write. I, I have my little phone recorder and whatever idea comes out, I'm constantly recording like, I'm about to fall asleep, a lyric idea will come in and I'll get up, force myself out of bed and I'll, I'll write. So I don't write in any certain direction. There's no rhyme or reason to what comes out of me. I just follow, I, I swear to that, that spirit that guides me. And that's what I do. I just, I don't know why I get it. Why do you get an idea out of your head for all of a sudden, hey, I got a chord, a chord progression in my head. Where does that come from? I, I don't know. But so I follow something guiding me. There's like a, another force somewhere in the universe that, kind of leads me or leads all songwriters somewhere you know when you get in first idea how, how do you do it what, what what comes to your head you know right. I, I, you're a songwriter as well you know where does that come from what well, see it, all songwriters are different and i can't wait to meet who, whatever spirit or whatever writes songs but you know in is if you're just asking me specifically like i have to be in like a set mood and be with a writing partner like i always like bouncing ideas off off one another i'm Unfortunately, I'm not in the camp where you are, where it's like I can just write something like right here and there, and then it comes to me, kind of thing. Like I have to like have like a right. like a foundation sort of thing. Um, now, okay, yeah, yeah. Mine are just constantly coming. So yeah, I just... you, well, you're a prolific songwriter, and I'm like, you know, that's why, you know, everyone writes differently. There's no set way to tell a story. There's no way to, to set way to write a song or a record. You know, everybody has their own their own niche, which makes us unique. You know, to our own f- style, right? 
Now I am. Yeah, absolutely. And you're the kind of songwriter that's like, I wish I was. I wish I was more prolific in writing songs and stuff. But also at the same time, I know a lot of songwriters, and I'm not putting you in this boat. But I know a song, a lot of songwriters where they'll write just this constantly write, and not all of it's very good, you know. That but they'll write just to write kind of thing. And I've never, I've always prided myself into writing quality as opposed to quantity. Right now. Let's go back on to the, the Reverend, the last little bit of Reverend Days. There was a live EP. So walk me through this whole this whole process and why the label, you know, the label was actually the Play God record, the recording process. Let's go back to, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting all, uh, you know, getting all, I don't know, all over the place a little bit. I'm having a little beverage here and, and doing my thing. So <laughs> let's, let's go to the Play God record and just, just do the um, the recording process for it. Yeah, we uh, that was uh, that would still be with Charisma as well. Uh, we hired Mike Rosen to produce it. I got along great with Mike, the producer. Um, he was good with pre-production. Really worked on the songs with us, arrangements. Uh, we felt we had a really strong record. Um, and you know, I, I loved you know what we what was happening with it. And I, you know, it came out. We did we did a few shows after that. But like I, I said earlier, you know, with the recording process, I was a little disillusioned. Um, Dave would just disappear for months, and we wouldn't know where he is. And we, okay, well, do we have a band? Do we want to rehearse? So what do you want to do? Um, so when we did the live album, we knew we owed Charisma one more record, and so it was a cop out. It was, uh, hey, we're going to give you something. We're going to play a show, give you this live album, and that's our record that we owe you, and we're done. And because we, we knew we were leaving, we were just we, Reverend Jason, Angelo, Ernie, and me. We just said we're gonna just get another singer and take our chances because Dave's really not part of the band. It was, it was tough. Um, you, you know, you wanted a five bandmate, but we we didn't have a singer around, so that was the end. We we did, so basically it was basically a cop out for the label. We just put it out. That was a, the end of our contract, and we. Looked for a singer and formed a new formed a new band. Ooh, now this is interesting. So this is a part of this of the Brian Corbin story and Heretic Days that I don't know. What happened after the Reverend Days for you? Okay, well, uh, obviously, I I'm sure after Play God, I had the next album already written. So we just moved in. We tried out singers. This was a little harder at this point in time because it's harder to get like a a singer that was interested in playing anything really heavy because everyone wanted to be in Seattle and wanted to be more grunge sounded. So it was definitely a longer process trying out singers. Um, I was living in Hollywood at the time. So, you know, you'd find a singer here, you'd go watch a band and maybe invite them to come and sing. And um, I was just doing four track demos in my room of the songs to play for people. But we ended up finding this guy named Chris Roseberry, really good singer. Uh, we ended up calling the band Seed at the time, S-E-E-D, um, and just played a lot of shows. We were good. I mean, we we're kind of a we we're a heavy, uh, not necessarily metal band, but just on the like an Alice in Chains, but a, like something like that. Kind of more of a grungy. I guess everybody kind of gravitated towards that, and um, we just never. We shopped labels, but at that time it was the end of record labels. It was just kind of we either sign in Seattle or, you know, good luck with a record contract. So we just did demos on our own, but never I never recorded another album until I got back into Heretic and 
2000. So we just did a ton of demos. Great band, great, great songs. Um, just nobody coming to the show. At that time, there was no LA scene. This would be like in like 92, 95. Those at that time, there was, you know, nothing going on. It wasn't like in the 80s where every night there was a show to go to and everybody knew each other. Now everybody just kind of, it, it was hard to get shows. And nobody came. You played to cricket, you know. So kind of like at that point you're disillusioned i'm sitting there going wow what happened so what kind of obviously did you kind of change your style to fit what was going on around this time or just strictly playing you know the 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 heretic kind of kind of sound obviously yeah Uh, 2020 hindsight i wish i would have just got heretic going at that point and started it and kept going maybe called julian or you know it would have been the perfect time to do it and just continue the career i look back on the bands that never stopped and i i'm envious i'm like wow if we would have just made i'd have had a you know 15 16 albums by now all these other bands just kept going and trudging through it i we ended up going a different direction and and I was happy with the music. The music is amazing. We made some great stuff. It just was never heard because we never released anything. Now, what were you kind of doing in the, you know, 95 to, I guess, 2010, can we say? Or just of your, yeah, kind just, of, were you working as, I don't know, a teacher, a chef? What, what were you doing around, you know, the, the mid-90s to the, the 2010s? Yeah, after... Uh, yeah, after Seed, and we changed our name a couple times and changed, you know, this and that. Tried as long as we could, and I just kind of basically hung it up. I said, I, I'm just done. I'm not, I'm not driven anymore. I never stopped writing songs. I started writing pop songs and just recording my own songs just so I could maybe sell them one day. Hey, I can write for Britney Spears. I, I'm a songwriter. You know, I can do this. So I never stopped writing. I just stopped being in a band i said i became a dad i got married had two boys and just kind of soaked that up for a while and just didn't worry about playing live or being recording i didn't worry about anything so it was uh kind of a you know just dad time it was it wasn't until uh yeah i guess julian finally hit me up and i said you know what it was it was i saw angelo Espino and Glenn Rogers playing in Hyrax in Europe. I saw pictures and I went, <laughs> you know, it sparked a jealousy in me like, oh my God, look at that. Wow. You know, I wish I could be doing that again. And sure enough, Glenn, you know, we start talking and then Julian hit me up about getting Heretic going again. And that's kind of how it fumbled back into the, the fold. It was kind of by accident, just by me seeing pictures and then almost, you know, fell in my lap with Julian coming saying, Hey, what do you think about this? You know? So really? I, I, I realized how much I wanted to keep playing. I, I, I actually did miss it more than I thought. Once I, once I started again, you know, I, I had to ask the wife, Horny, can I play again? You know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, Oh, sure. I go, are you sure? Because I'm not just going to be in a, a little cover band. I'm going to be in a band band. And so, yeah, it, I made sure I got permission and never looked back after that. So it's good. No, it's interesting, and and I'm just, and my apologies for keep cutting you you off right now. I'm just really interested. So it's been documented on this show too that that you guys had hit up Julian, like Glenn Rogers had hit up Julian to start Heretic up again, and he he was reluctantly said no around this time. So I'm just curious as to so you obviously were seeing 
Glenn Rogers and and uh, and Angelo Espino, you know, doing essentially, you know, playing in Europe and stuff. When did you right. when did you contact Glenn? I, I actually needed equipment because I didn't have an amp anymore. I had all my guitars, but I sold all my amps and just got rid of everything. And so when we had. As soon as Julian, he actually approached me with a show out in San Diego. Like, they want Heretic to play. Do you want to do it? And so I think I might have rehearsed on somebody else's amp, but I didn't have my own amp. So I said, hey, Glenn, do you know anybody that's selling an amp? And Lance Harrison was selling one, so I went and bought one from him. And that's when Glenn said, what are you doing? You know. And he said, how come you didn't ask me to be in the band? And that's how the, all that formed, because we really didn't have – a second guitar we were thinking about it we didn't know what we were going to do at the time it was really early and so i just said yeah you got the job dude let's go because me and glenn had played together you know since childhood and we'd known each other since elementary school so we played together through the years all you know a little here a little there a little there so it was fun to finally get in a band with him that was going to be something real well why did you why did you guys decide on the name heretic though because it was someone that asked uh, to do like a, uh, I don't know, it was a metal blade thing. And we were playing with another old metal blade band. So they wanted to see if Heretic would reunite. So Dennis was actually in it. Dennis, Julian, and me. Rick Merrick didn't do it, but we we got a fill-in drummer. Um, it was just an you know, old 80s metal bands playing. So it was just kind of a, a weekend gig. that Yeah, yeah it would be great to play those old songs again. And then when I decided, hey, so I'm going to do a band, Heretic's already established. I've got the name. Let's just make it Heretic. It's Julian. It's me and Julian. I was Heretic, so let's do it. And that's how it just formed from there. We didn't we didn't ever think of another band name or anything like, hey, let's start from scratch. It was kind of like, hey, Heretic's established. There's, you know, no Metal Blade wasn't going to fight us to use the name or anything because it was so long ago. Um, so we just went with that and it worked, it worked great, great response from the beginning. It's always been all our old friends came out of the woodwork and it's just really fun to be involved with it again. Now, in your opinion, when did, when did Dennis O'Hara not work out for you? Unfortunately, really early. He, uh, was doing the early sessions of getting it back going again. He was, I think living kind of far away and having some problems with, substance abuse and where to place to live and it was drama that was just a little strange to me because i'd been i hadn't been part of it for so long i'd been out of the music industry and it just brought back memories of wow i don't want anything negative right now i'm really enjoying this and unfortunately it didn't work out at the time he's my brother i love him dearly he's a fantastic songwriter he's a huge part of heretic but unfortunately it just didn't work out at that time you know Maybe as time went on, it would have worked out if he could have, you know, fixed his life and things. But once we established everything with Angelo, it just seemed such a natural fit that we just moved on. But Dennis is a huge part of Heretic's history, you know. Right. And, and like I said, I'm sorry to, to hear about, you know, all that, that stuff. But I'm really thankful that Angelo's in it just because he's, you know, he's my one of my homies. <laughs> no, I'm just yeah, wondering. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering when he came into the fold in your in your opinion. Like walk me through, you know, did you see him with Anger's art and be like that is our guy or or you saw him with Bitch or something like that? And like I, like I said again, this goes back to 
all the boys in the neighborhood. Angela was one of those guys from the backyard parties and going to the clubs. And so every, we all knew each other. And we knew everyone knew Angela was a bass player. And he was, when we needed a bass player for Reverend after Dennis left the first time, he was the only guy I called. I go, I'm going to get Angela. I think he was in a band, Uncle Slam at the time, or they had just done an album or he had just left. And he said, yeah, that's good. So that's when he joined Reverend. Um, <clears throat> that'll be for the play God era. And then he ended up, you know, once Reverend left, we did that. I was in that band seed with him for like three or four years that, you know, and once that piddled out, we just, I hadn't seen him for a long time, but Angela was playing with Angrizard and bitch. And one of heretics first shows was opening or for bitch. And so we saw Angelo again. I go, Oh my God, he's such a great bass player. Listen to his sound. Listen, he's like, and he came out and he said, dude, I'd love to play with you guys, you know? And sure enough, we just, I guess he'd been with Angus Art for a long time and he's just kind of looking for something else and decided to move on. And when he saw us again, he just said, wow, I'd love to play for Heretic. And we asked him, if you're interested, you got the gig, you know? And that's how that you know came about real fast too. Absolutely. So I've been in several, you know, yeah, I've been in several bands with him. So I knew exactly what to expect. Fantastic player. He's like, you know, precision. So, you know, it was a kind of a no brainer as well. You know, great and, guy. So. And there's no, there's no drama. There's no bullshit. It's just, you know, I'm here to play bass and that's it. And he's our, he's our steamroller. He's the guy, he's the business guy. He, he, he's reluctantly taking it all on, but he's that guy that, you know, he's always fast to say, Hey guys, we need to do this. We need to do that. He's like, he's, He's the motivator of the band. Him and Julian. Julian's the same way. He's always pushing us to do things. No. So I, I, I guess I surround myself with people like that because I'm, I tend to just be the songwriter guy, the lazy guy. So I need somebody that's going to say, hey, you need to do this. Let's go. Well, you need that kick in the ass kind of thing. And I get it. I mean, I'm that, I'm that kind of kick in the ass, even though like I do write some songs here and there. But, you know, I, I like being able to see us succeed kind of thing. You know what I mean? Now, yeah, absolutely. Now I'm wondering, in your opinion, why not get, you know, you know, your homie on on drums again during the, I guess, the time of the 2011, 2012 era, so like the time of crisis era for Heretic. How did you guys um, settle upon, you know, Iggy for for your drums? Um, well, when Merrick was retired, he was the uh, uh, what is he? <laughs> Fix the backs. I can't think of the name of the doctor, but you know he's got his career going. He's, he's a chiropractor. Like, boy, brain freeze at that. Um, and I, we initially played with this guy that Glenn knew, Rodrigo Dupay, and uh, didn't didn't necessarily work out. I, he's more of a thrash drummer, and Heretic has a lot of like kind of maybe slower paced songs. Just didn't the style didn't work out right away. And Iggy was somebody that Julian had known playing around in San Pedro. That's what Julian was living in. Just knew him through the years. He's a, he's a lot younger than us. Kind of a fireball kind of kid. And, um, great friggin' drummer. Jesus. And as soon as we heard him, he, dude, you got the, you got the gig if you're interested. Cause he's so good. And really didn't go through a ton of drummers when we reformed. It was Frederico had the initial gig and then I would play a few shows and that's when Iggy came in the fold. And so like, again, musicians just kind of fall on my lap 
through everybody just knows each other, you know, and it's never really been a, a hard process of finding people to play with, luckily for me. Absolutely. Now, walk me through, this is your first album literally in, at least with the Heretic Camp, in, in, in over 20 years. Um, yeah, now, a long time. Now, I'm wondering how you approached the time of crisis as opposed to, say, Breaking Point. You know, because you had pretty much seen all your peers kind of doing new records. In my opinion, our, our specific, you know, new wave of, of thrash metal was huge at this point. Mm -hmm. It was huge. Us, us young guys were, you know, essentially playing the style that you guys were playing. It may be a little bit more heavier, but, you know, you right. guys came back. And, and how did that much, did that play into an influence in, in your writing process for, you know, your first, you know, the new record for you guys in over 20 years. It, it's interesting you bring it up because the first conversations of really trying to get it back together when talking with Dennis and Dennis had a lot of kind of rap metal ideas and this kind of idea, Hey, we, we need to modernize heretic. And I, my only thought was, I just want to kind of keep it how it was and play, be true to what heretic was because of the fans from the past and to maybe, get your Europeans interested as a because you know I, I know there's not a huge American American metal market there is now luckily over the years it's been really growing but I was kind of more we signed with a European label and they wanted kind of more classic metal sound and that's basically what I was writing anyway when I started writing again I wasn't I didn't have a I'm gonna write thrash songs I'm gonna whatever came out of me for heretic was what I was gonna record and that's what the sound, I think it's fairly true to some of the earlier stuff. And there's some faster songs, some medium paced songs. And I, I didn't have a specific sound in mind when I, when we reformed, I just knew I wanted to keep it true to the original band as, as well as I could so many years apart. Absolutely. And getting um, Glenn into the fold, obviously he's a prolific songwriter as well. I'm sure he helped you know, steer some of the songwriting process for a time of crisis. Right. Um, now, why did you guys decide on metal on metal records? Because, and, and, and I'm not trying to, to, to be a downer, but it's like they only press a thousand records of this specific CD. <laughs> so I'm it, just you know, wondering it, why. It was easy. It was fast. We, they gave us an offer. It got us a record out right away. It was like a glorified demo tape. None of us had done it in a while. It was nice to just get the ball rolling. It was really a no-brainer. We just kind of went, yeah, okay. We, we did contact Metal Blade, and there was absolutely no interest. You know, um, we were, you know, we hadn't played in so long, and you know, we never sold to begin with, really. So uh, with this, we had a few different labels, but the Metal on Metal one seemed to be the best. So, you know, we, we talked with the owners. They're passionate music people, you know, out of Italy. And so it said, you know, a glorified demo tape, let's get back going and then we'll see where it goes. But realizing that they were only going to do a thousand and then once it's it sold out right away, it, we did great. And then they just said, okay, well, that's all we're going to do. And that really disappointed us because, hey, you sold a thousand that fast. Why not press it again? Keep it going. Let's, we want to play more European shows. We want to do this. And, the, and they just were kind of set on the idea of not spending the money, I guess. They're just some, you know, mom and pop record label. But they were great to get us started. Now, what, um, was, what was the contract for it, What was the contract for it? Was, it, its for it? 
just one album, you know, and we'll see how it goes. It was nothing too binding, you know, they own the rights for a year to the record type of thing, you know, nothing, nothing major. That's why we signed it. Cause it wasn't, you know, we own the rights to heretic for your entire life type of thing. We knew we would probably end up moving on, but hopefully to some major label, but obviously never happened. But, um, it was a great start for us. It got us out there. We went to Europe with that. We we played shows on the East Coast. We, I was just happy to be out doing it again. It, we were really rolling, rolling, rolling. Everything was great. And it just kind of fell apart. Iggy just had, had different issues here and there and couldn't keep going out. And then with the label, we weren't happy with them. So we started looking for a different label and that, you know, as things get postponed, next thing you know, a year has gone by. You, you, wow, we haven't done anything. It's been a while. You know, we just kept playing local shows and writing. I'm constantly writing. So I had the Time of Crisis record written probably right after, um, uh, I mean, A Game You Cannot Win, written right after A Time of Crisis. So all those songs are, I, you know, just always going, always writing. But it just took a long time to get the next record out because of, different things happening where we had to look for a drummer and shop in a different label. And we, we had to produce the songs on our own, going to a studio on weekends and recording three songs at a time. That's how we made the albums. That's how we did a time of crisis as well. We paid for it. And then the record label just put it out. And then, so that kind of brought up sore issues with everybody. Hey, we got to pay for it again. You know, so it just takes longer and longer to get the next record out. So unfortunately it took another five years. till we got something out. And I'm just wondering this too, and I don't mean to be a downer, but I ha- just I'm just trying to do my job here. It, when Glenn left, it seemed like you guys stopped playing Europe. It seemed like you know, like was was he the guy that was kind of booking European things for you guys? And and why haven't you guys even gone back? You guys haven't even gone back since that that era. That that is Glenn. Glenn was a smart smart businessman. When he everywhere he would go, he remember people's names and who did who was the promoter here who was a, he's a smart guy when it comes to that and he, he's a really the one that got us to the east coast he got us to europe he you know but we had to pay for all that and that's the hard part about being a musician and so you got to fly to europe you know you got families we all got jobs and you got to work out two thousand dollars for your airfare to get there just to play a show it's, it's harder on you know none of us are made of money unfortunately we don't have that job it's just hey i'll i'll pay for the whole band unfortunately we're we're guys that fucking work hard for our money so it's harder for us to get there and unfortunately glenn was a lot of the contacts with europe um we, we we've been in contact with some of the festivals but we just uh, i don't know we had the drummer issues where we went we're in between iggy and we got it we replaced him with someone else then ended up getting iggy back to record the record and then Iggy just quit almost immediately after recording the record. So we had to look for somebody else. So that's when we luckily found our new drummer, Sean. It's just amazing as well. So it's it, like I said, years go by and you don't even notice it. And you're like, wow, what happened? Where, where'd the time go? That's why you got to do we it now, such, right? <laughs> yeah, we had such a role going on. And just like 
we played Europe, we played the East Coast, we played this and that, da da da. Now, you know, we actually had it going. We were going to play in September, a big festival out in, in the Brooklyn. Yeah, but because of the pandemic, yeah, it got York, pushed right? off. Like New York, New Jersey. Yeah, New so, yeah, we, we had a tour with Angra's Art. We were going to play up there. We were going to go play four or five shows on the East Coast, and bam. Now everything's put off to 2021. So we it'll just, happen. You know it'll got, happen again. We got put, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but it, it's, it's it's things like that that happen. And next thing you know, there's six months, seven months, a year's gone by. And unfortunately, it, it I'd love it everything to move a lot faster, but it just doesn't. I, like I have the new record. The new records we've got it all almost mapped out. We just need to get pre-production going and start recording. Now we need to figure out how who's going to pay. Hopefully we can get our record label to go come through with that. Uh, we don't know who we're going to work with yet. Maybe Haddad, maybe someone else. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking now about the next record. Absolutely. Finalizing. Okay, what are we going to do? We have the song. Let's get it going now. So everything we can start rehearsing again now because we can all get together. Now, uh, hopefully it's going to start rolling again. And let me ask you this, dude. So you're a songwriter like myself. How come you haven't used technology, I guess, in, in a way to, to just make to, to make the process faster kind of thing? You know what I mean? Like, so you're a songwriter. If you wrapped it all in Pro Tools, sent it to the guys, they made them record it all and then send it back. So you have, you know, record upon record upon record. But you guys kind of haven't done that. You're still the old school getting uh, to rehearsal I studio. Am, and... I am. I, I'm, not, I'm that old guy that's not savvy with computers. <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, my Apple computer. I had GarageBand, and that's how I would do all my demos. It sounded pretty good, but, you know, I was, nothing I would ever release. My hearing over the years is so bad, I'm a terrible producer. Um, <laughs> I, things I think sound so great, I'll transfer it into the car, and I go, oh, my God, it's horrible. You know, I, I don't know. I just never... I really should have invested all these years into getting my home studio going because I write so much because I write so many styles of music as well. I, I write acoustic and uh, I write pop. I write everything. I just have them all on these cheesy demos. So, yeah, it's, it's a fault of mine. Absolutely. I, I really should have utilized my time better, but I but didn't. But if, if, you're, <laughs> if you're a prolific songwriter in all these specific genres, not to keep picking on you, but it's like, why haven't you incorporated that specific styles into Heretic? Uh, I try to. This um, this next record's definitely got three songs that are completely off our radar that we have to choose from. That um, there's a song called uh, "Follow You Over the Edge," and there's a new one that I just wrote. It's, it's kind of about uh, soldiers dealing with issues when they come back from war. I've, I've written about that several times. There's a song called "Broken Hero" that I wrote about the same thing. It, but I was inspired by a movie that I saw, and I just said, wow, this is such a powerful subject. And the song came out in 10 seconds. So it's kind of competing with this other power ballad that we have. And I definitely, there will definitely be something a, a lot more out of our range on this record. There's a, definitely the most diverse heretic record ever. Thank God. For sure. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> I think to begin with, we probably came out, we just wanted to be power, power, power. Let's go, let's be Euro metal, you know. I think now I've had a few years to think about it, and uh, and whatever's coming out is is a little more diverse. And Julian's been wanting to reach out and spread out his vocals for, for years. So he's he's excited about what we, what 
you know, what's in, what we have planned and he's getting involved with the writing process and vocals and melodies. And, uh, so it's, I'm really excited for this record. I, I, I'm always, my newest stuff is always my the stuff I'm so proud of because it's brand new, you know, but wow. I really, I'm, I'm biased right now because I really think it's some of my best stuff I've ever written. I'm really proud of some of these songs. There's Absolutely. a song called Spill Blood that, I'll, I'll say the title now. It will be on the album. It's called Spill Blood, and it is just such a strong song. It's just classic. It's got a driving riff, and it's kind of old except sounding, and oh, such a great, really strong lyrics, really proud of the lyrics. So look for that one when, when this record comes out. It's going to be a big track. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. I know that, that Julian, you know, obviously Julian came on the show and was, it was like, I'm going to give you full credit and saying that you, you know, you, you pushed us and, and to be better songwriters. And I'm like, I'm not going to take credit for that. But what I will say is that I'm looking forward to the new heretic. I hope, I hope that it's, you know, just a step above because I'm always wanting better for all of us. Right. So. Right. And, yeah. And, uh, and, and like I said, I'm not going to take credit for it. That's all you guys kind of thing. I hope. You know, some influence has, has, you know, gone into that specific camp for me. But if not, it, it, that's not what I'm looking for. I just want the best sounding records possible and the most diverse. I don't, right. think, I don't think people write songs anymore. And it's kind of distracting for me because as a songwriter and I maybe because I'm old school and that and I'm a young guy, too. I still like the song. I still want to be able to have that hooky chorus and have people chant it live. Like, I like that shit, you know? That, that's, that's very important to me, no matter how technical I get. I, I have an acoustic guitar. I write almost everything on a 12-string. All my metal stuff is all either on... I have two acoustics that I play. I don't write with my amp. I write so it's a song first. I don't know who I learned that from. I learned it from some famous artist, songwriter that said it once, and I read it in a magazine somewhere. It has to be a song first, and then if you have a true song, then it's going to be classic. Then it's, it's something everyone will appreciate, no matter what the trinkets you put over the top of it. So I always try to have a strong base of a song, first chorus, and a great riff, and then everything else is going to fall in place. All the other band members are going to bring in these great ideas for arrangements and things like that. But I, I write on an acoustic. I don't, I don't sit in front of my amp and, and tinker out riffs, because when I do... When I transfer the riff to the amp, I'm oh, it's a feeling that you go, oh my god, that's heavy. You know, I'm used to hearing it on a twelve string, and so when you do transfer it over, I realize, wow, okay, this is fucking great. So, and let me ask you this real quick. So we're doing now that we're doing like the the time of crisis era, um, Glenn leaving. So what, walk me through that whole process and you getting in stew. Yeah, that was a uh, Stu had filled in for Glenn a couple of shows Glenn couldn't do. He had something with the family. And Stu's just such a pro player. He goes, Oh yeah, I know all the songs. Cool. <laughs> He's so relaxed about it, but he can play every song known to mankind. So he had already filled in for Glenn and Glenn and Julian kinda had some issues with Iggy because Iggy was a sore spot. He was is he in the band? Is he not in the band? Is he gonna show up? Is he not? And Julian really defended him to the end because it was Julian brought him into the band. I love the guy, but him and Glenn started fighting about it. And Glenn was bringing in drummer ideas and it was just a sore spot with Julian that, Hey, look, why are you forcing Iggy out? And I think it just, some bad blood developed there. And Glenn just decided, look, I, I'm too old. I don't want to deal with drama. I'm not going to be part of this. And he just decided to leave. You know, it was as simple as that. It was just an argument. And we're, hey, we're old men. We don't need to be fighting over something silly. 
And so he just moved on and Stu just came right in. Stu had already knew all the songs and I'd already played with him in Reverend. So, you know, it's, again, musicians fall on our lap and Stu's always been a close friend of everybody. And, and he's just such a phenomenal player. And it was so easy. Absolutely. And you also played with them, obviously, in Heretic. He did the keyboards on the Breaking Point record. Yeah, I'm, I'm Breaking Point. Yeah, yeah, Breaking Point. Can we expect, I guess, some of that on the new record? Yeah, absolutely. I, there are definite pieces where I'm, I've already got my notes for each track. I'm, you know, the trinkets I'm going to add to the top. And you'll see keys in several places on there. So I'm going to call on Stu for many, uh, many an occasion there. So definitely a lot of 12 string. Just because I've incorporated it so much because I've been writing on it that I think I realize there's so many great spots where you just add it over the top. It doesn't have to be a main instrument, but for textures and things like that, that I've been, I didn't utilize enough, like you said, in the earlier couple of releases we did. So this one will definitely have, a, you'll see a, a more instrumentation for sure. And, and you're, you're a music guy, right? So obviously you, you and I are the same way. We, we like layers, right? Now, when you were writing it, obviously, in the in the mid to, 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 you know, early 90s, you had a little bit more layers. And it seemed like when you guys came back, and it, this has nothing to do with the band itself, but I'm saying the climate, it seemed like a lot of people were just afraid to incorporate that stuff again. You know what I mean? Like, to push themselves as songwriters or as musicians and... And it seemed like it, the cool thing to do was go back and, and just start from, you know, start from the, the basic point of being an L.A. band. You know, it was just pure, you know, nonsense when it came to like 13 songs sounding the same or 14 songs sounding the same. There's no there's no um, diversity to it, you know, like and, right, and, right. and, and what made your guys is not and what made Heretics and all the bands from that era is like albums you know, iconic and stuff is that you guys weren't afraid, afraid to take chances. And it just, you know, seemed like nowadays yeah. you guys did. Uh, unfortunately, now everything, it's so easy to record that you overthink things in the studio. I, I know I do. You listen to something too much, you can tinker with things that you probably shouldn't. And I think that I think that's what happens with a lot of writers now. Everything's so polished that it's easy to lose track of your original thought most of the time i find your original thoughts are the best you can I'll, I'll go back on old demos that i did and like wow why did i change it that's heavy as hell what, what was i thinking you know um the, the studio can hurt you if you if you really analyze things too much for me personally um i think that a, a lot of bands a lot of music right now on metal does sound alike it sounds like it's all one producer um, it's, it sounds amazing. I love the so many bands out there with great tones and videos. They make these amazing videos, and, but a lot of it just it's all the same album. Um, there are bands that stand out, and they're the ones that are probably selling the best and doing the most. But like uh, I don't know, I really don't listen to a ton of other music other than stuff that I know. My son recently has been showing me a lot of metal. He's a he's a metal head, so he he shows me newer bands and things like that. But I don't necessarily seek out a ton of old newer stuff just because uh, I don't know. I don't know why I've never really have. A, I've, I've, I'm so consumed with my own writing and, and there's always songs in my head that I guess I, I just don't seek too much out anymore as I got older, you know? Um, but, <laughs> no, but, but, but my, 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 I kind of lost my train of thought. No, but, but not even that. I think where you're going is, is like, like, 
your foundation is still, you know, the the songs that had a lot of layers and stuff and, and added to the music. And the, my initial point was it just seemed like a lot of the bands from your era just lost that. It was just you wanted to sound like a specific a specific point, I guess, in the 80s where it wasn't diversified in your music. It was just, we're going to write this song and we're going to write it 13 times or 12 times on a record, and that's the record. Right. So, yeah. If you were a fast band, you just played a bunch of fast songs. Correct. Yeah. And I just noticed a trend during the, the, the mid-10s, as I'll call it now, um, that a lot of bands came out and they were doing that if they were from the 80s. And... and and then you guys kind of changed, you know. You guys on a game you cannot win. Your songwriting kind of changed uh, drastically, where you had a ballad, which was great, um, and it show it showcased more of Julian's like vocal range and stuff. And I like to see, you know, hear that stuff. And I'm just wondering how you approached that. Like I said, I don't necessarily think about what comes out of me. I, I don't go in thinking I've got to have a power ballad and I need three thrush songs and I just each song each day there's a new song and each day is my best song that I've ever written you know guys I'll, I'll text the guys I just wrote this amazing song you won't believe it I'm going to bring it to rehearsal you know so that's happening to me all the time I'm always writing my best song so like I'm not necessarily thinking about a style or where I'm headed or what I want to look for. Or I get influenced by a sound or anything. I just, I, whatever comes out just is what I, I start working on. And like I, like I said, it's a mystery to me where the ideas come from because I don't seek them out. They just kind of hit me. And then I, I roll with it. I just kind of let my hand magically start writing. But what with heretic, I, I, I'm, I'm really glad we've started evolving a little bit you know i guess the first albums we just wanted to kind of power through them get that old school metal sound back and reestablish ourselves now i think this is our third album we're able to we'll grow a little bit julian's been expressing that for years he's wanted to grow as a singer with the band a little bit more so definitely been consciously i guess maybe looking vocally for him for some different kind of melodies that I normally wouldn't write, you know, when, when the ideas come to me, I, I just, I'm looking for something else. So I, it's, it's going to be great. It's going to be a great, great record. I'm really excited for it. I know, I know it's probably going to be one of our, uh, I, I shouldn't say anything. I'm really, I'm excited for it. I'm excited for it. Yeah, it'll probably be one of <laughs> Hopefully your it'll best. do good. I'll knock on wood. Well, well, Brian, thank you very much again for giving me a couple minutes of your time, a couple hours of your time, I should say, and just, just discussing with me your history and stuff. And I just, um, you know, I have two more questions. One is, is obviously, give me your links. Um, basically, we don't have the website. We've kind of let fall through because just we didn't have any activity going on. We're just basically on Facebook at Heretic Metal. And then we have uh, just Heretic on, on Facebook. Those are the only two pages we've really got going on right now. Um, Angela was working on a, a band camp page that will open up soon, but I don't have a link for that yet. So just Heretic Metal on on, on Facebook, and then there's a, a Heretic fan page on Facebook as well, just the name Heretic. Absolutely. And my last question that I neglected to ask you was, do you remember the, your first song and what what you titled it? The first song that, whoa, jeez. First song song? Oh, my God. My first conscious song is Heretic. That was my first song that I really wrote for a specific band, and that was going to be the the basis of what we were going to be writing. Um, but my old 
junky songs from when I was 13, 14. God, there'd be so many, but I wouldn't remember the titles at all. <laughs> Probably hokey rock songs about love and, you know, uh, influenced by UFO and Zeppelin, things like that, Beatles and just uh, always writing, but probably terrible stuff. <laughs> I, and back then I didn't have a demo. I, I didn't, you know, have tape recorders or anything. I just would write them. They'd just leave once I forgot them. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thank you very much, seriously, for giving me a couple minutes of your time. Another episode of Poppets Corner. I'm out of here, guys. Cheers.